Good morning. Good morning. I, thank you. <laughs> I've loved being here on campus and meeting some of you. It's been really special. There was a long night in October while we were held captive. By that time, we'd been in the jungle for about five months, and we were getting to know the guys holding us, sort of learning their stories. Some said they were coerced into becoming Abu Sayyaf members. You know, if a band of 30 Abu Sayyaf with their guns and machetes came through your village and asked for three volunteers, it's pretty likely that you would come up with three volunteers to send with them, rather than to make these mujahid, these holy warriors, angry because everybody'd heard what happened if you didn't comply with the Abu Sayyaf that came through. Massacres, beheadings, looting. One kid had spent some time with Martin. I can't remember his name right now, which bothers me a little bit. This kid was about 18 years old, and his father was a poor fisherman. He had no education, but he fell in love with a girl in a neighboring Muslim village, and in their culture, the guy pays the dowry, and the bride price was 50,000 pesos, $1,000 or so, which might be a lot for some of us in Canada to come up with, but how much more this kid whose family had nothing. So he joined the Abu Sayyaf in hopes that he would be around when a ransom payment was made, and he could take his share of the money and go get married to his sweetheart. This particular night, we'd heard the military was near, so we mobiled long into the night. We walked till 3.30, 4 in the morning, and were just exhausted, lay down in a field of long grass to get some rest. There was dew on the grass, it was wet, but we didn't care. We would have laid anywhere at that point. Suddenly, the sky lit up with a bright light, almost like daylight, and a parachute opened up, and this light floated to the ground right near us. Anyone watching could have seen our whole group. And Martin leaned towards me, and he whispered, Oh, no, they found us. That was a flare. They were just confirming that we were here. And I expected us to get up and keep moving, because one of the unwritten rules between the Abu Sayyaf and the military was they never had gun battles at night. But no one moved. We were exhausted. We lay there the rest of the day, the night. Early the next morning, right at dawn, we heard the rumble of what they called six-by-sixes, um, huge trucks with flatbeds on the back, and we knew they were full of soldiers, and we got up and began moving out of this sheltered area towards a big field in the valley, and within minutes, we heard someone over in the trees yell, there they are, Oi, it's the Abu Sayyaf, and the guns started blaring. Well, this is it, I thought. <laughs> As we ran and dropped and ran and dropped, our guards would tell us when to run, when to drop. There was automatic gunfire everywhere, the pops of the rocket launchers, people yelling the smell of gunpowder, and somehow we made it across that field and reached the edge of the woods and got behind some big massive rocks, and little by little the group started arriving and we headed off running down, into the, uh, down a trail into the jungle. And when we stopped for an hour or so later to rest, I heard that that kid, you know, the one whose name I can't remember, was killed in the gun battle, shot in the gut with a 57 mortar. And I was devastated. Here was this kid, just wanted to get married. 
entering eternity without God. And I didn't want to think about it, but I couldn't help but think about it. And the horrible situation that these guys were in and how things kept going from bad to worse for us. And I was so scared and depressed and I just sat and bawled. And then I started thinking, Gracia, you need to get yourself together. We're going to have to start walking again soon. So I started thanking God for all the good things he'd done for us that day. We were still alive. We weren't wounded. I had lost my big black burqa type headdress that they were making me wear that was so oppressive that I just hated it. had fallen somewhere out on the field when we were dropping and running so I could feel the wind in my hair again. And I began quietly reciting verses out loud to calm myself. I will never leave you or forsake you. For I'm sure that neither life nor death, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any of those other things that I can't remember at the moment, can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in time of trouble. And I wonder if some of you were praying for us as I was working through that that day. Many of you have said, we prayed for you, and I never, never want to pass up the opportunity to say thank you for praying. Every time you prayed, we needed it. That day as I sat cross-legged on the ground, I realized that in every situation, if you look, there's good, because God's there in your situation, and God's good. I'm honored to have been asked to continue the series, When Jesus Said, I Am. I get to cover, I am with you always. I love how when Jesus was preparing his disciples with the fact that he was going to be going away, he said, but that's not a bad thing, that's a good thing. Because when he left, he said, he was going to send the Holy Spirit to indwell us, and then we would never be on our own again. He told them the mission's very important, and you're going to need much power, to do the work because the world is not going to be friendly towards you, but you'll never be alone while you're doing it. Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And how grateful I am for that promise. What a neat I am for Martin and I to hang on to during our long year. Our problems seemed especially daunting the night the military started shooting artillery at us. Always before artillery fire was during the day, we would hear the thumps of the shells being fired miles away and we would start counting one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Usually about at number 10, there would be an explosion, sometimes near, sometimes far. Often as we counted at number six or so, there would be a that would go over our heads and we knew that one was going to land far away. It was disconcerting when they began shelling constantly, even at night. As we lay on the jungle floor, wondering if in the next few seconds, after the faraway thump, the mortars would this time find us. How could artillery fire possibly kill bad guys and miss the hostages? And you know what I love about our God? As Martin and I lay on the jungle floor praying, we prayed to a God who knows how we feel. And we can come boldly to God right there when we need help. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says, So then, 
since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There, we'll receive his mercy and we'll find grace to help us when we need it most. Our God knows how we feel when we're in need because he became flesh and dwelt here on earth. He knows the human condition. And when we we come to him, he doesn't think, well, that problem is dumb. I've heard the comment, you're small. I expected you to be bigger. How did such a small person survive a year in the jungle? I have no idea. I'm a city girl. I don't even like to camp. I just kept putting one foot in front of the other, I guess. My husband and I were missionaries with New Tribes Mission in the Philippines. New Tribes Mission has changed their name recently, Ethnos Canada now, and we would love to meet you at the table in the atrium. What we really need is people praying for our tribal works all over the world. You can go to ethnos.ca for prayer requests, and you can work alongside us praying as we work in tribal villages. Martin was what we called a jungle pilot, delivering supplies and taking people in and out of remote locations. We loved our ministry. And we'd been in the Philippines 16 years when we found ourselves in the wrong place at the wrong time, taken hostage. How did we survive that year? I, I think God did something special for us. No one plans on being taken hostage. We didn't train for that sort of thing. And suddenly our worlds were turned upside down, surrounded by enemies. Days dragged on and on. We got hungrier and dirtier. We suffered from lack of sleep because we couldn't get comfortable sleeping on the jungle floor. We got dysentery and diarrhea. No place to take a bath, no clean clothes to change into. And I started feeling more like an animal than a human being. Always thirsty. One day we were desperate. For water, and I was begging God for some water. And we got to a little pool of stagnant water, and as I dipped my cup in, I saw that there were leech eggs in it. And the enemy began to whisper in my ear, Hath not God said, Where is your God in his loving kindness now? When the enemy comes in like a flood, God will raise a standard against him. We overcome by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. What was that scripture again? The word. (laughs) When our enemy whispers. Let me read it once more. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So... Let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There, we'll receive his mercy and we'll find grace to help us when we need it most. Jesus knows what it's like to be thirsty. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights to be tempted by the devil. He was hungry and he was thirsty. On the cross, he cried, I thirst. And I don't think he's forgotten how that feels, guys. 
Our God knows how we feel, and He cares, and we can come boldly to Him with our problems. And He doesn't think the problem that you bring to His attention, the help that you're seeking right now, is unimportant. So what's true of you today? Do you have a problem? Are you walking down a trail you would rather not be walking down? Is victory in your life non-existent? Do you feel alone? Have you come to the end of yourself? We all have our jungles, don't we? At the year mark, being held hostage, we were at an all-time low. Who would have ever thought that this nightmare would continue for over a year? Martin, for several months, had been eyeing a shortwave radio that one of the guys had, and he got up the nerve to ask Abu Sabaya, one of the leaders of the group, if he could borrow the radio. And we were searching around looking for Voice of America or anything English speaking to get a little bit of news when we came across a shortwave Christian radio station out of Alaska, KNLS. We tuned in just as a pastor was reading verses about how Christ is seated at the right hand of God making intercession for us. And he said, if you could hear Jesus in the next room praying for you right now, you would not be afraid of any enemy. And then he went on to pray for those who were facing hardships for the sake of the gospel. He prayed for those suffering from oppression or living in war-torn areas. And Martin and I looked at each other with big eyes. That's us. He's talking about us. <laughs> that message on the radio, it wasn't long at all was the first spiritual input from the outside that we had had in over a year. So refreshing. The reminder that Jesus can sympathize with what we're going through and that he's praying for us. During your hardship, please know that God has not abandoned you. No matter what situation you find yourself in today, you are not alone. And he knows how you feel. And he's given you special permission to come straight to him with your problem. We kneel right there at God's throne. Right there where Jesus is sitting. Wow. I'm glad that, God, that Jesus explained to his disciples and to us that living the Christian life was not going to be a bed of roses. He actually said, in this world, you will face problems. You will face persecution. Things will be hard, guaranteed. There's no safe way to be a follower of Jesus. In late August 2003, the New York Times reported on a theft at the Church of the Holy Cross in Midtown Manhattan when caretakers noticed on Sunday morning that a 200-pound plaster rendering of Christ had been removed from a wooden cross near the church's entrance. The fact that a statue was stolen was less surprising than how it was stolen. The statue was about four feet long with a steel core and had been bolted to the cross in four places. The thieves had entered the church, unbolted the figure of Jesus, and carried it off, leaving the cross behind. One of the caretakers told the Times, they just decided we're going to leave the cross and take Jesus. We don't know why they took just him. We figure if you want the whole crucifix, you take the whole crucifix. 
In essence, the thieves wanted Jesus, but not the cross. What about us? Do we want Jesus without a cross? Do we want discipleship without sacrifice? Do we expect our walk with God to be one of uninterrupted peace and tranquility? Do we expect that our service to God obligates Him to remove all obstacle from our path? For a lot of us, it's not really costing us a lot to follow Jesus, is it? And sometimes we hear, well, we all have our crosses to bear. My cross is that one class. Or my cross is this health problem. Or my cross is that roommate or that family member. I think we've lost the meaning of the cross. If you were living in first century Jerusalem and saw someone surrounded by Roman guards carrying a cross down the street, there would be no question in your mind where that person was going. You would know he was about to be taken outside the city, laid on a cross, and crucified. Someone carrying a cross was someone who was about to die. So when Jesus said, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. His disciples would have understood exactly what he meant. And they took his words to heart, didn't they? Every disciple except John, died a cruel martyr's death. They knew the words of Jesus to be true, that what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory that he'll give us one day, and that they could be of good cheer because their master and example, Jesus, had overcome the world. Untold millions have never heard that there's a Savior, and to take that message to them is going to be costly. It will cost us our money and our comfort. It will cost us careers and lifestyles. It will cost us our dreams and our plans. But we have the promise, lo, I'm with you always. Several years ago, I flew into Atlanta, Georgia. Um, I live in Kansas, right in the middle of the United States. It would be a great place to go if you have a long cross-country planned. Come see me. So... I flew into, a, into Georgia, and some friends met me at the airport, and they were going to deliver me to my next speaking event, and we were having coffee, visiting when my cell phone rang. Well, you know how you hate to be rude, but your cell phone's ringing. What do you do? So I excused myself, took the call. It was the Office of Victims of Crime in Washington, D.C., they wanted me to be aware that there'd been an arrest made the day before of yet another of the guys involved in our hostage taking, someone Arad. She told me his name. Well, that didn't mean anything to me because I didn't know their real names. I only knew their Abu names. I said, do you know his alias? I heard paper shuffling. She said, uh, uh, yeah, it's right here, Harira. Oh, how well I remember him. Martin loved Harira. Somehow those two just got along, and he asked Mr. Martin to start teaching him, him English, and they spent a lot of time together. One day I asked Martin, what if someday in the far-off future, Harira shows up on our porch in Rose Hill, Kansas, what are you going to do? Martin said, I would give him a big hug. I would fix him the biggest chicken dinner he's ever seen. And while he's eating it, I would call the FBI. <laughs> Good answer. Well, suddenly this phone call, right? 
Praise the Lord. Now I know where Herira is. He's in the custody of the Philippine military. He'll go to trial and be charged with kidnapping and murder. I'm so glad that Herira is not dead. His day of grace is not over. And maybe in jail, he'll hear the gospel of Jesus and the Holy Spirit will open his eyes to the truth. And you say, oh, sure, Gracia, like that's going to happen. Uh-uh-uh-uh, that is happening. <laughs> Greatest story ever, I told, told the folks on Friday about how I've been able to reconnect with some of the very men who held us captive, 23 or so of them. One in the prison is Jimmy. Jimmy loved to fight. The call went out that the Abu Sayyaf have hostages. We need you. Come, bring your gun. That's all Jimmy needed to hear. He loved a good gun battle or two. Sure beat his job at the banana plantation. And what's the worst that could happen? Die in jihad. Go straight to paradise where the eternal rewards are like amazing. So off he went only to be captured by the military, ending up in a dirty, hot, stinky, overcrowded prison, home of 14,000 of the worst of the worst. Runny rice porridge a couple of times a day for the rest of his life. Did I mention overcrowded? Men everywhere. And suddenly Jimmy was all alone. His wife and children were left to fend for themselves on a far-off island in the southern Philippines. But in prison, Jimmy found out that Jesus sets prisoners free from their sin problem. And he became a new person in Christ. Old things passed away. Everything became new for him. Which means Jimmy will never be alone now either. I am with you in your jail cell. I am with you in your boredom and regret. I am with you as you share your faith in a hard place. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And I've been able to find Jimmy's children, and I'm sending them to school in hopes that they have a chance to not get sucked into that vortex of poverty and hatred and terrorism that their dad was caught up in. And the kids have been going with an auntie to an evangelical church. And we just pray. Who knows why God chooses one person to do one thing and he chooses someone else to do something else? Who knows why some of us grew up hearing the gospel of Jesus over and over and over and some in the world will never hear it even once? Who knows why some of us live in abundance while our brothers and sisters in Christ starve or face extreme persecution in another land? I don't know the answers to those questions. What I do know is... Our day of grace is not over either. We have today. And we can do whatever we want to with today. And today we're called to take up our cross. The one assigned to us. We're not to walk along murmuring at the cross that's been appointed to us. We're not to faint under it and decide it's too heavy and put it down and walk away from it. We boldly face it. We patiently endure it because we only have to carry it a little way and then our turn's over. And along the way, as those who don't know God, 
see us living this life of faith and carrying our crosses, we get to share with them the honor of knowing a living Christ. You can't be a disciple without cross-bearing. Whether you're in the heat of the battle or one who supports or encourages those who are, we must consecrate our all to Jesus and take up our cross. And it doesn't matter that far better men and women than us have carried their crosses. We just need to be faithful with ours. And the promise of God is that grace will be given equal to the weight of the cross. And I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And after your little while that you get to carry your cross is over, a crown is waiting at the finish line. No cross, no crown. I stand humbly, looking back at our experience, grateful to know the Lord. It may seem strange, but I think God treated us very gently. How many things were graciously hidden from our eyes that year? And what an honor for a short period of time to experience the fellowship of His suffering. When I got home, people started calling Martin a martyr. And it bothered me. Elizabeth Elliot also faced that. In the preface of her book, Shadow of the Almighty, she wrote this about her husband, Jim Elliot. He and the other men with whom he died were hailed as heroes, martyrs. I do not approve. <laughs> Nor would they have approved. Is the distinction between living for Christ and dying for him after all so great? Is not the second the logical conclusion of the first? Furthermore, to live for God is to die daily, as the Apostle Paul put it. It is to lose everything that we may gain Christ. It is in thus laying down our lives that we find them. Those who want to know him must walk the same path with him. These are the martyrs in the scriptural sense of the word, which means simply witnesses. In life as well as in death, we are called to be witnesses, to bear the stamp of Christ. I believe that Jim Elliot was one of these. And I believe that Martin Burnham was one of these. And I think that many of you here today are one of these. You who are determined to live for God when it isn't popular and it isn't easy. You who daily lay down your lives in order to find them. You who continue on. Witnesses who bear the stamp of Christ. And I thank you for having me today. God bless you guys.